Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? I have an amazing guest for you. Unfortunately, we had a little bit of technical difficulty with my audio during this podcast um, recording. There is an echo. I don't know why this happens. I record the same way each and every week. And sometimes we have this issue and sometimes we don't. Luckily, the echo is just me and not um, not our guest. And so that is good news. So what we've done is gone in and edited out as much of my audio as possible. Um, I'm re-recording this introduction. And then we edited out, edited my questions um, and commentary to just the very, very basics. And so I wanted to give you a heads up on that. So number one, you're like, why is there an echo here? And number two, um, you'll be thinking, gosh, her questions are kind of short and she's not talking much today. Well, that's because we have taken out as much as possible. And that's really okay, because I, you don't need to be listening to me. Um, who I want you to hear is Cynthia. She has some amazing golden information. We're talking about a lot today. And it's really good timing because she's a, an intermittent fasting expert. And we are just about to kick off um, feast to fast. And so this is very timely. And what Cynthia does is really fill in uh, what I feel like has been a missing piece of the fasting conversation for women, and that's hormones. Should we consider uh, different strategies of fasting based on what hormonal season of life we're in. Does a woman in her cycling years fast in the same way a woman in her menopausal years does? What about a woman in perimenopause when things are kind of all over the map? Do we fast that the same way? Um, and I'm just thrilled to say that um, Cynthia Thurlow, who's with us today, literally wrote the book on this, and she's here to give us the answers. She's a nurse practitioner, functional nutritionist, an expert on intermittent fasting with a TED Talk that has received more than 10 million views. I have the privilege of knowing Cynthia through the Nutritional Therapy Association, and it's been very exciting and inspiring for me to watch her popularity and expertise explode since her TED Talk went viral. Her book is called Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the IF45 Plan, and it really dials in on these differences we need to consider based on our hormonal status. Cynthia also has two podcasts, um, Everyday Wellness and the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. They're full of great information. She's also a mom to two teenage boys, and so um, every time I hear her talk about them, I just kind of want to fist bumper or hugger or something because <laughs> we're we're right in those teenage year trenches together. Um, it is an honor to have her on, and I just welcome Cynthia to the Christian Health Club podcast.
Thank you for having me and for that wonderful introduction. I always say that uh, I've loved every stage of being a parent and I even love the teen years. You just have to connect with your kids uh, on their terms, which is what is sometimes really challenging for adults to recognize. Really keeps you on your toes. Well, let's start with some background. You were educated and trained as a nurse practitioner. What led you in a more holistic direction, which took you through NTA and ultimately um, in a complete shift in the way that you personally and professionally practice healthcare? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think on a lot of levels that our children are our greatest teachers. And uh, my oldest, who's now 17, when he was an infant and was exclusively breastfed, developed really bad eczema. And every time I took him to the pediatrician, I was told the same thing. You know, it's nothing that you're eating, uh, has nothing to do with gut health. Uh, just use this high potency topical steroids and cross your fingers. And I really pressed the pediatrician for a referral to a pediatric allergist. And I was really surprised to learn that my son had life-threatening food allergies, which he has not outgrown. Only 30% of children will actually outgrow their allergies. So he is um, very, very sensitive to tree nuts and peanuts. And that really changed my whole perspective on nutrition and, you know, feeling as if everything I was doing, you know, I ate a, a really healthy diet. How could this happen? And it really sent me down a rabbit hole. And, and initially it was fueled by fear because I had been an ER nurse in my past life. And I knew what anaphylactic shock looked like. I knew what these really severe allergic reactions look like. And in many instances, I've seen people die, even adults, of anaphylaxis. So for me, it, it put me into a tailspin. I started making every single thing he ate. I didn't want to take him to family or friends' houses out of fear of cross-contamination. Going to a restaurant really was scary for me. And then it just got to a point where I was like, this isn't realistic. I can't live in fear. I need to be proactive. And um, by the time he was two years old, he had a brother. And so I was dealing with uh, an infant and a toddler. And we definitely had years where things were pretty simple in terms of not really eating out at all, which that hasn't really changed, and really being very cautious about what he was exposed to. Thankfully, he's never needed to use an EpiPen, but it's always in the back of my mind, um, even more so now that he's a teenager. But fast forward a few years later, I read a book by Robin O'Brien called The Unhealthy Truth. And I think that book combined with my older son's food allergies uh, shifted my perspective. It, it actually is a book that I, I genuinely recommend everyone read. Um, I've had the honor of having Robin on my podcast and on a lot of levels, it really forced me to examine all of the information I've been taught and trained in. It forced me to take a very different perspective on uh, my plate, the food guide pyramid, the processed food industry, the USDA, uh, and really trying to understand why are we seeing so many food allergies and food sensitivities in children? What's changed about our food and what can we do about it? And so that book changed my life. And uh, initially, I started a doctoral program. I thought I'm going to get a PhD. That's going to that's going to you know uh, assuage the concerns I have about the limitations of my role as an NP. And I took one class and hated it. And then I did a wellness coaching program. And you know, although I enjoyed it, that wasn't my thing. And then I read another book uh, by Liz Wolf called Eat the Oaks. And I reached out to her the same day I, I read her book. And I said, where did you get your training? I, I think it's really important for me to have this training, add it to my skill set. 
And she told me about the NTA and I think I literally signed up that day and the rest is history. And so that program at the time was only nine months long. So it was pretty manageable while working and having kids at home. And it shifted my whole perspective on the way I was treating my patients, the way I looked at food and uh, was a huge impetus in my decision to leave clinical medicine. I, I love being a nurse practitioner but I felt so constrained by the conventional allopathic model. Let me be clear, uh, I have benefited from the traditional allopathic model. If you are uh, acutely sick, emergently sick, urgently sick, need surgery, uh, that's where allopathic medicine really shines. But in terms of prevention and chronic disease management, we do a really crummy job because we don't really take into account lifestyle. And so I pivoted in 2016, I left clinical medicine and started my own business. And that's really the beginning of the path that I've been on for the last six years. But a lot of that stemmed from my son and then reading books. I always say books come to us <clears throat> when we're ready for the message. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, when we're ready for the message. And so I was really ready for those messages. And I, I sit in gratitude that, you know, those two females and their work really was so pivotal in the shift in my focus for my career and my family. But one I'm really grateful for. Well, well, speaking, speaking of, of um, the place that the allopathic, allopathic me uh, medicine, medicine shines, shines. Um, I yeah, think a really, a really important, important part of your part story, of story um, is, is your serious health care, uh, health scare, scare in 2019. It's just, it's also very inspiring considering how close to your TED talk it was. So could you just tell us about all of that? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a story that I'm always comfortable sharing. I think sometimes... Uh, podcast hosts are, are perceived that I don't want to share. And I, I do think it can be an inspirational story. So my husband and I went on, he went on a business trip and I went with him for the first time. We've been married, gosh, now 19 years, this would have been 16 years. And first time I was able to accompany him on a business trip, my mom had finally retired. We went to Hawaii. I'd never been. And while I was in Hawaii, while he was working, I was starting to write the second TED talk and I had all these milestones that you have to hit prior to a TED Talk um, before everything gets approved. And we came back from, from Hawaii and um, you know I'll never forget this. I think we got home on a Friday and like Saturday night, I didn't feel good. I thought I had food poisoning. And by Sunday afternoon, I knew something was wrong because I felt really bad and I was having discomfort that was worse than labor pain. And for any woman that's listening, that gives you some perspective. And so off we went to the ER. Uh, my kids were in shock because I always jokingly said to them, the only time I'm going to the ER is if I'm dying. And so they were like, you're going to the ER. And I said, yes, I feel pretty bad. And when I got there initially, uh, they didn't take me very seriously, but I had a tremendous impending sense of doom. And for anyone that's listening, uh, as a healthcare provider, anytime a patient told me they, they thought they were going to die, I took that really seriously because I, I do think intrinsically when we're connected to our bodies, we can perceive where there's danger or a threat to our health. And so initially I, I wasn't taken very seriously. And then when my lab work came back, all of a sudden things started to move pretty quickly. I had a very high white blood cell count, which identifies I've got a pretty bad infection. And so I was sent for a, they call it a stat or an immediate CAT scan. And that revealed I had a ruptured appendix, but not just a ruptured appendix. I had the entire length of my colon was inflamed, so they call it pancolitis. And the surgeon came in to see me, and uh, the first thing she said was, if I take you to surgery tonight, I'm gonna have to take the whole length of your colon. And I said, as sick as I was, 
I was like, please don't take my colon. I need my colon. She's like, no, you don't need your colon. I said, no, no, I know what happens when you take out my colon. I wear a colostomy bag for the rest of my life. I don't want that. And so thus began a 13-day hospitalization uh, with a, kind of a touch and go the first week. I knew how sick I was. Um, by day five, I was pretty despondent. I developed a small bowel obstruction. Um, my surgeon, who different surgeon at this time, female surgeon, was really wonderful. And she was coming in multiple times a day. And she just said, I don't know why you're not getting better. You're on antibiotics. I was seen by multiple um, specialists. Uh, you know, I, I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing to get better. And so I, I believe over the weekend when I hit day five, um, I became very despondent and very depressed. And my cousin, who's a physician, actually flew in to stay with me so that my husband could be home with the kids. And I remember saying to her that I felt a presence, whether it was God or a spirit or the universe coming to me and giving me an option. And the option was, you know, this can go one of two ways. What do you want? You know, do you want to live? Or do you want to kind of end this pain and suffering? Um, and so I chose that if I was going to live, I was going to live the, le the rest of my life and, and not fear anything. That this whole process, only five days in, taught me a lot about myself and my resiliency. And so on day five, they actually started, uh, it's called TPN. So for listeners, if they're not familiar, that's total parental nutrition. And even though I was so sick and I felt awful, I looked at my cousin and I said, can they give me organic TPN? Because TPN is largely soy-based nutrition. And my cousin, who's an OB, looked at me and said, if you don't let them feed you, you're going to die. You realize that. Like your body is breaking down. It's catabolizing all your muscle. I lost probably 10 pounds the first week because I was so sick. And I, I'm not someone that has a lot of weight to lose. And so that then started the second half of this hospitalization where one of the reasons that I was not getting better had to do with developing an infection in my peritoneum. So I had two abscesses and they had to put drains into those. And then I later developed a fistula. And what I'm trying to say is I had a slew of complications in an otherwise healthy person. Had I not been so healthy, uh, I probably very likely would have had a very different outcome. And so after 13 days, I went home. And the first thing I said to my husband was, the only things I thought about in that hospital, number one, was getting home to my family. And the second thing, as crazy as it sounds, was I still want to do this talk. And so 27 days after I left the hospital, I did a talk that changed my life. I did the talk to show my kids that I was okay. And that was the only intention I set, was that I wanted to go and do that talk. The irony is I did that talk with a ruptured appendix and then had it out 10 days later. And I really didn't think more about that talk other than when I got home and I was like, okay, you know, it'll probably come out in, in May and, you know, we'll kind of move forward. And, you know, I was getting healthier and stronger day to day, week to week. And I went to South Carolina for that TED talk with my surgeon's blessing because I was doing so well. But I'll be the first person to tell you that I think the universe gives us opportunities to grow and through adversity comes opportunity. And so the rest of my life is really dedicated to demonstrating to people that, we are far more capable and powerful than we realize and that we should never shrink from challenging times in our lives. I, I don't think the obstacles that were put in my path were there to do anything other than to make me move. Um, not that I was living a life where I wasn't finding things to challenge myself, but I, I don't think I would be where I am today had I not had that experience. And you're right, as a healthcare provider and spending 
20 plus years taking care of very sick patients in the hospital, uh, I can tell you there is nothing more humbling than being in a position where you have to surrender, fully surrender to the people taking care of you. And that is for people that are like to be in control <laughs> it is very challenging, but not in a way that's bad. I, I feel really grateful. In fact, I keep in touch with most of the providers that took care of me, especially the nurses, uh, many of whom went on to become nurse practitioners after that. And so on a lot of levels, I sit in gratitude that I went through that as hard as it was on my family uh, and myself, you know, emotionally and physically, uh, you know, I wouldn't be who I am today had I not been through all that. I think that's a really um, a good example of um, a major obstacle that turned into um, just made you pivot and in in that that presence God that you felt just reassuring you it was going to all be okay and then from then you know being in that kind of vulnerable vulnerable position just making that decision like I'm I'm just I'm going for it and and that is that is how we're going from here and I just love all of that well thank you Okay, well, okay, let's well, get let's to get the meat of our topic. Of our topic. Let's just kind of start with uh, very the very basics about why fasting is so beneficial for women. Well, and it's it's interesting because a, a podcast got published yesterday, and so I've been I've been having to defend my position on on fasting and women. We wouldn't be here as a species. We wouldn't be here from an ancestral health perspective if our bodies couldn't go through periods of time where we had access to food and when we didn't have access to food. I think on a lot of levels over the past 50 to 100 years, the processed food industry has done a really great job convincing us that we need to be eating frequently. We need to eat a very carbohydrate-dense diet. And I'd be the first person to say that fasting can be incredibly therapeutic for men and for women. When we acknowledge that only 7 to 8% of the population is metabolically healthy, and we can unpack what that, what rep, what that represents, most, if not all of us, would benefit from eating less frequently. And so depending on where a woman is in her lifestyle, you know, under 35, really at peak fertile years, 35 to 50, really the years of perimenopause or menopause, one year without a menstrual cycle, and the average age here in the United States is 51, when we really consider all of those factors and lean into our physiology, understanding that there are times when we should fast during our menstrual cycle and times we shouldn't understanding that the role of lifestyle becomes increasingly critically important as women get older and lifestyle is really pointing at sleep quality, managing our stress, anti-inflammatory nutrition, right types of exercise, especially strength training, gut health, exposure to toxins. Those become much more significant to us as we get older. But to, to somehow suggest, and, and I'm, I'm kind of framing this in the perspective of the feedback I've gotten over the last 24 hours, to somehow suggest that fasting is dangerous for women or is not aligned with an ancestral health perspective really speaks to the fact that the processed food industry and my plate and a lot of food narrative has been so largely mis misshapen. And I use some of the recent, you know, there was a recent White House um meeting that brought in uh, some of the representatives from Tufts School of Medicine and their nutrition school and really speaking as an example to this plant-based narrative. And, and I think it really does us a disservice if we are convincing ourselves that we need to eat frequently, that we need to eat a protein devoid diet. We're designed to be omnivores. We are designed to eat meat. We are designed to eat a good amount of protein. 
healthy fats, lots of vegetables, um, you know, low glycemic fruits. But unfortunately, we do exactly the opposite. And certainly what I was telling my patients 15, 20, 25 years ago is completely the antithesis of what I would share with individuals now. I mean, I always say know better, do better. But if nothing else, understanding the role of different types of macronutrients and meal timing and food frequency and how that can, you know, really reflect upon not just body composition, but just overall health and metabolic flexibility. And so that's really the place that I speak from. I really try uh, not to fear monger. I know there's certainly a lot of people on social media that like to do that, but I really come from a very science and research-based perspective, trying to offer information that's helpful uh, and certainly information that people can take back and utilize the beauty of the N of one. You know, everyone that's listening, there may be different variations to, you know, what does intermittent fasting or eating less often mean and represent for you could look very different for each one of us. Let's talk about what we need to be considering in each of these phases of our life, um, the reproductive or active cycling years, perimenopause, and then menopause. Yeah, it's a really important consideration. And, and let me be really clear, most of the research that's been done on intermittent fasting has really looked at animal models. And last time I checked, we don't have the gestational composition as a mouse or any other type of mammal doing research on. And, and the rest of it's been done on men and, and obese menopausal women. So there still needs to be continued efforts to include younger women in research. Um, there's certainly emerging research on PCOS and fasting, um, which is certainly you know heading, heading things in the right direction. But as it pertains to life stage, women that are 35 and under, even if they're choosing not to start a family or, or have a child, it's important to understand that your body is really geared for reproduction. Um, this is really when your, your hormones in most instances are optimized to um, achieve and maintain a pregnancy. And so understanding there are certain phases of our menstrual cycle. If we look at a 28 to 30 day cycle, roughly from day one, which is bleed day up until ovulation, let's say it's day 14, um, that's the follicular phase. This is when estrogen predominates in the menstrual cycle. Estrogen is an insulin sensitizing hormone. It's also the hormone that allows us to do more intense exercise. It allows us to have a lower carbohydrate, even ketogenic diet, if that's where what we're leaning into. And then after ovulation, uh, we have uh, progesterone predominates. It's the luteal phase. And so progesterone is a different hormone. Um, I always tell everyone that, you know, we really want to find balance. The body is always looking for homeostasis. And so progesterone certainly helps with that. This is the phase of the menstrual cycle. Women may have less, um, they may have less energy. So this is less intense physical activity, understanding in the luteal phase that they tend to be less insulin sensitive. This is also a time that you may not be able to buffer uh, a, a very low carbohydrate diet. Um, that's where carb cycling, I think, can be very beneficial. And then understanding that five to seven days preceding your menstrual cycle, this is when I don't recommend fasting. You know, anywhere from 12 to 13 hours of digestive rest is absolutely fine. And I would argue that everyone listening should be doing 12 to 13 hours of digestive rest, even if they are not quote unquote fasting. And then once your menstrual cycle starts, you head back into um, the next phase of your, of your menstrual cycle. So that's, that's the first bucket. Also understanding that these women that are at their peak fertile years, they're, they're getting cues from everything on, on the outside, as well as 
you know, if their body perceives that uh, intermittent fasting is too much stress on the body, you know, remember that uh, fasting is a form of hormesis or hormetic stress, so beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. But if the body perceives that it's too much stress, they may get alterations in their menstrual cycle. And I do think of the menstrual cycle uh, in your period as a barometer of stress in your life. So think about if you've ever gone through a really stressful period of time and your period changes, maybe it, maybe you're not pregnant, but you may skip a cycle. Um, I always say we want to be really thinking about the menstrual cycle as a barometer of our health. So um, same as blood pressure and pulse and temperature and respiratory rate, that menstrual cycle is certainly a, a report card of our health. So that's that type, that bucket of women. And then perimenopause and things change. You know, what people don't realize is um, late 30s, early 40s, you're there. Whether you're cognizant of it or not, you may notice subtle changes in perimenopause um, five to 15 years. I always say it's usually really 10 to 15 years prior to menopause. Um, and finding out like what your what age your mom was that she went into menopause might be a good gauge to determine when you will, but that's not 100%. Um, something to consider is that we're not as stress resilient in perimenopause. So you may notice as your ovaries are producing less progesterone that you may experience more anxiety and depression. You may have sleep disturbances. You might start feeling uh, a little weight loss resistant. Maybe you've never had issues with your weight or maintaining body composition. All of a sudden, everything changes. And it's because with less progesterone produced by the ovaries, the adrenal glands are helping to step in and, and lend a hand, if you will. Uh, but in that setting, you'll, you'll get a degree of estrogen dominance. So this relative imbalance, remember I said, we're looking for balance, but in perimenopause, this starts to shift. And so, Women may start having tender breasts, heavier, you know, I used to call them crime scene periods, um, weight loss, you know, weight, weight loss resistance. They may feel puffy and bloated. Again, the sleep disturbance, depression. And a lot of women in this stage get put on antidepressants. They get put on anti-anxiety medication. And really what they probably need is some progesterone support. But getting back to fasting in women in this stage of life, we really have to be mindful of sleep quality. I tell everyone, if, if, I, if you cannot sleep through the night, I cannot get you to lose weight. It is that critically important. And if you're not sleeping, don't add in fasting. Remember what I said earlier, it's a type of hormesis, beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. We have to manage our stress. We absolutely positively can't do five minutes of meditation once a week. There has to be an active practice every day to manage our stress because as I mentioned, our adrenals kind of step in to help with progesterone. So they already have a, a, an increased burden at that stage of life. Anti-inflammatory nutrition, which I know you talk a lot about. So that's really poking, uh, poking a finger at gluten and grains and dairy and alcohol and sugar and soy. And alcohol in particular can erode our sleep quality. We know it can be inflammatory. We know that our body processes it as a toxin. This is not to suggest that every person listening can't manage alcohol, but I see a lot of women who wanna drink like they did at 20 when they're 45, and it really can be problematic, especially coming out of the last two and a half years when everyone was dealing with a new normal that they had never experienced before. So perimenopause really leaning into those lifestyle pieces, and that extends into menopause, but I do find for a lot of women, Perimenopause is a barometer of how well they're taking care of themselves. So if you sail through perimenopause without too many issues, you're probably going to transition into menopause, which is 12 months without a menstrual cycle fairly easily. That's been my experience. Um, and menopause is 12 months without a menstrual cycle. And so in perimenopause, we're still focused in on 
follicular phase is when you can get away with fasting, backing off the week before your menstrual cycle. And then in menopause, women don't have as much hormonal fluctuation day to day, week to week. And in many ways, it's easier for women to fast in this stage of life along with men uh, because there is not as much hormonal flux. And so they still lean into the lifestyle pieces. That's critically important. Um, There are a lot of women, because I get messages almost every day on social media or my team does, uh, people who, you know, struggle to figure out why intermittent fasting isn't working for them. And so I always say, go back to the basics. What's sleep like, stress management, anti-inflammatory nutrition. You cannot eat the way you did at 18 when you're 45 or 50. You just can't. And I think we really have to not come from a scarcity mindset. We need to think about intellectually why and how certain foods no longer serve us. And I'll give you an example. I um, put an autoimmune issue into remission by going gluten-free when I was 40. And then when I was 45, I realized I no longer tolerated dairy. And so I've been dedicated gluten and dairy-free that entire time. And a lot of it has to do, it just doesn't, I don't feel good when I, when I do those, when I consume those foods. And so really getting honest with ourselves of what, what no longer serves us. The other thing that I think is important for middle-aged women, and this ties into fasting as well, is that, you know, the value of understanding that as we are not making as much estrogen heading into menopause, we start losing some of these people-pleasing tendencies. And so I think for a lot of women, myself included, I've been a people-pleaser my entire life. I'm now a reformed people-pleaser. You start speaking your mind more and you stop pleasing others you know, in, in a capacity that is not sustainable. And so really understanding that having healthy boundaries is very, very important in navigating that time frame. But that's typically like, that's an overview about how I recommend peak women, women at peak childbearing ages versus perimenopause versus menopause. And I find a lot of women really have, they navigate menopause really nicely by fasting, but the caveat being those lifestyle pieces have to really be dialed in in order to do so successfully. Most people that are probably listening to this podcast, they're already aware of a nutrient dense whole foods diet, but I find for the bulk of the people that, you know, either end up in programs or purchasing the book and reaching out to us, they're not effectively utilizing different types of fuel in the body because they're eating so frequently, their body never gets an opportunity to go in and and utilize stored fat as a fuel source. So even before people get to a point where they're going 12 hours, maybe they're going from dinner to breakfast the following morning, um, we do have to, you know, there are certain things we have to, we have to remove the snacking, we have to restructure macros. And then I feel like people can get, you know, do those longer periods of time. Because if someone goes from being a couch potato, eating a standard American diet, and trying to fast, they're gonna struggle because their body does not effectively utilize different types of fuel substrates or different types of fuels in their body. And so that can be a little bumpy. And so it's really like, I think very methodically about what are the steps that are gonna get at people from being predominantly utilizing glucose as a fuel source, which is a quick burning source of fuel. And you'll know that you're a sugar burner, if you will, If you get hangry in between meals, you can only go to two to three hours without getting hungry. You're weight loss resistant. You have energy slumps. You want to take a nap after a meal. That's not efficient use of fuel in your body because your body is designed to go through periods of food scarcity, even if even if the processed food industry tries to convince you otherwise. And so a lot of the work that that my team and I do 
is really helping people understand what is metabolic flexibility, how is that defined, you know, how do we create habits in our personal lives that can help with that. So even before we get to 12 hours of digestive rest, which my Italian mother would be the first person to tell you, you know, there's no snacking between meals. There's no, there's no dessert every night. There's no popcorn after dinner every night. Um, you know, before you even get to that point, you have to stop the snacking, which will force you to restructure your macros, which are protein, fat, and carbohydrates. And then people are ready to even have 12 hours of not eating because let's be honest, we've convinced our patient population that they need to have snacks and mini meals to quote unquote, stoke their metabolism. And what it's actually doing is it's making us metabolically sick. And so I think that's an important kind of distinction to make sure that caveat is kind of added so that people don't assume if they're going from being sedentary and eating a highly processed hyperpalatable diet that they can suddenly jump to, okay, now I'm going to fast for 16 hours. I, I don't see that being successful. So that's why we have these little, you know, as we're kind of moving along the continuum, these are the things you need to do to set yourself up for success. I would guess the average woman probably consumes 40 to 50 grams of protein a day. And it's important to understand that, especially north of 40, um, sarcopenia, which is muscle loss with aging, is not a question of if, but when. We have peak bone and muscle mass in our 20s and 30s. We don't do a good job telling women that. We let women get into perimenopause and menopause, and all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, you know, we're in this critical mass. We have to, to rectify this. So we lose muscle mass. We also lose muscle strength. And so it's, it's important to understand that these two things together are very impactful on metabolic health. And I'll tell you why. You want to think about your muscle and I'm very visually oriented. So when I talk about young muscle, young, healthy muscle, it looks like filet. I think everyone has a visual of what that looks like. And then you have the beautiful ribeye steak. Well, a ribeye is great to eat, but I don't want to be a ribeye. There's a lot of marbling. There's a lot of adipose tissue in there. And depending on the individual, they may have a preference of one over the other, but we don't want to have a lot of adipose tissue in our muscle because when we start losing muscle mass, we start losing insulin sensitivity. This is why lifting weights is critically important. This is why it's critically important to be getting sufficient amounts of protein in our diet. And I'm gonna say it, animal protein is superior to plant-based protein. That's not to suggest you can't have a little bit of both, but when we're really looking in and fine-tuning insulin sensitivity, understanding we have a lot of adaptations to uh, you know, when it's light outside, when it's dark outside, chronobiology, all these things that impact insulin sensitivity, the more muscle mass we have, the more insulin sensitive we are. And I said earlier that only seven to eight percent of the population is insulin sensitive, really critically important. So when we are talking about fasting and we are talking about having a feeding window, um, I am not a fan of one meal a day because it's impossible to get those macros in. And I teach my women to have no less than two meals a day. Some people need three. Um, and if you can get that in an eight hour feeding window, that's great. But really having 40 to 50 grams of protein in each meal. And for many of you listening, you may be only getting 50 per day. So I'm not expecting you to go to, from 50 to 100 overnight. Um, and if you look at the research and, and certainly Dr. Gabrielle Line is a personal friend, also an, a mentor. And from all of my conversations with her, it's one gram per pound of ideal body weight. So 
I weigh about 120 pounds. I'm not 120 pounds of muscle. So I aim for 100 grams of protein a day, no less. And my husband knows. Some, some nights I'm sitting there sipping on bone broth at the end of my feeding window because I'm trying to bump up my protein needs from the day. And I think it's important to understand that if you're currently under eating protein, you're putting yourself at risk for sarcopenia, um, dyspnea, which is this muscle strength loss. And that is even more concerning because I can't tell you how many patients I took care of that were in their 50s who couldn't get off a bedside commode in the hospital. That's a problem. You don't want to lose muscle mass. And so, um, you know, certainly muscle protein synthesis is stimulated by strength training. It's stimulated by adequate um, protein intake. It's stimulated by adequate sleep. So if you're listening and like your sleep is terrible, that's the first thing to figure out. Like, why are you not sleeping well? Um, and it just becomes more complicated uh, with age. Doesn't mean it's impossible, it just becomes more complicated. But I would say protein is the most important macronutrient. In fact, I try really hard when I travel to show photos of things you can get. Like almost always you can get a naked burger and just have a salad. I ate that a lot when I've been traveling recently because sometimes you go in places and it's like all fried stuff. And I'm like, okay, no cheese, no bun, um, no French fries. I just want the salad and the meat and I'm good. And people always, you know, generally they don't look at me like I'm strange, but occasionally that happens. And so really important to understand the significance of adequate muscle protein synthesis from those three things, sleep, strength training, um, and adequate protein intake. And the other thing to consider is that strength training should, should really push you. Um, I, I've been chronicling with my trainer um, the gains I've made in the gym and I'm, I'm menopausal. Like I'm no longer getting a menstrual cycle. Um, that hospitalization in 2019 probably pushed me over the cliff of perimenopause. Like I was probably fairly close, but that shoved me off the cliff, losing all that weight, um, 15 pounds. And so I think it's important for people to understand that it's even more important for me at this stage to make, make sure I'm maintaining muscle mass. So I work out with heavy weights. I'm not doing body weight exercise, although there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm using heavy enough weights that it's it's a struggle to finish sets. And, and it's so that I push my body so that it's telling my brain, telling my muscles to really continue to try to build in this stage of life. Oh, that's, oh, so, that's good. so good. Ooh, 40, 40 to 50, to 50 grams, grams of protein. So mm-hmm. I, I know because I, I, I listen to you all the time. You eat two meals a day. And so you're getting, you're aiming for that 40 to 50 per meal. What is a meal? Like, can you give us an example of like, cause I mean, one burger patty, that's, that's typically not going to be enough. Are you trying to get, you're trying to get that all in one meal or, or just in your feeding window? Yeah, no, no. Um, so hundred grams in my feeding window, but I try to divide it into meals. So okay. like, as an example, my husband, it's funny. So I have teenage boys, as I know you do too, and they have ridiculous appetites. And my husband used to make quarter pound burgers, you know, bison burgers. And I would say to him, I could eat two. <laughs> if I can eat two, the kids can eat probably three. So now he makes third pound burgers. And so, um, I may eat a third of pound of bison, Maybe a th- maybe I'll eat a burger and a half, and then I'll usually have a couple eggs. Like I'm I'm on a bison burger and deviled eggs kick, and I go through periods of time where I want certain types of protein, and I'm eating a lot of cabbage, um, like cabbage slaw, and so I average 50 plus grams of protein. So each egg is six grams of protein, and so if you eat three or four of those, you know you can get 18 to 24 grams. So I'm definitely in a meal like that, probably closer to 60 grams. And and I didn't start off that way. Let me be really clear. 
but I think it's it's understanding like what is how many grams of protein is in an eight ounce steak? How many grams of proteins in half a pound of chicken? Um, we had a the four of us ate a like a good sized chicken the other night, and my husband was laughing. He's like, "There's nothing left because <laughs> two people like dark meat, two people like white meat." Um, and we just ate the entire bird and, and my husband was like, gosh, I remember we could make that last for two meals. And I was like, no, not with teenagers. But I think for everyone that's listening, I'm very, I've been doing this for so long. This is now three or four years of this that I can eyeball a protein size and I have a very good sense. But a lot of what I do is non-starchy vegetables and some type of protein. And as an example, you know, I don't eat a lot of fish and it's not that I don't like fish. It's just my family doesn't particularly like fish. So if I eat fish, it's usually when we're out or if my husband picks them up. So I had a good sized tuna steak the other night. Um, sometimes it's salmon. Um, I do, we do eat shellfish, um, but we generally like beef and bison. And we kind of went down the, the rabbit hole of trying some exotic meats. Some were winners, some were not. Wild boar was good. Elk was good. We weren't huge fans of ostrich. That was a little bit dry. But it's understanding that you may start with 30 grams in a por- in a portion, and that's okay. But you're over time, you want to be pushing the protein grams up as you are, you know, feeling more comfortable. Now, people will tell me, "Oh my gosh, I'm so full when I eat that much protein." I'm like, "Good," because then you don't want to eat more food. Then the, you know there are specific hormones and mechanisms in the body that will hit those satiety cues that you're like, "I don't want to eat another piece of food. I'm totally full." I'm not a fan of people. Um, restricting their food intake, like that's very important. No one should ever white knuckle it through fasting. Um, today's a good example. I lifted very heavy legs yesterday, and when I was done working out this morning at like nine, I was like, I'm really hungry, and so I broke my fast a little earlier than I do typically because I was hungry. So I'm not a fan of people not leaning into the cues that their body's giving them. The caveat being, you can't intuitively eat if you're not metabolically healthy, and so. For many people, they may have to go through a period of time where they get to a point where their body becomes fat adapted, when their body's able to use fats and glucose as fuel substrates, when they can understand how does your body feel when it's full? How does your body feel when you're craving foods? Like, why are you craving food? It's not to say that there's anything wrong with, you know, like I I have an obsession right now with cabbage. I'm not sure why. I always say, clearly I need some phase one or phase two liver detoxification support because <laughs> that's what my body's craving. But understanding, like, are you craving something carby, like chips or ice cream because you're stressed? Are you not hitting your, your macros and that's why you're craving food that doesn't have a, like a high nutrient profile? Um, did you get really terrible sleep? Because I know when I don't sleep well, I don't crave broccoli. I'm going to crave crap and so like understanding your body well enough to to lean into the information it's trying to share with you yes i i'm with you on all that thank you that's that's such good information what what are your thoughts on protein powder are you a fan in favor of i'm a realist yeah i'm a realist i mean we have protein powder in my house we have creatine in my house um i have two very athletic boys one plays varsity football and lacrosse the other one's a competitive swimmer and I'm, I can't get over how much food they can eat. But yeah, we do have high quality grass fed whey. Like I like Marigold. That's that's the brand that we have. Um, and I also have bone broth protein because I don't eat dairy. I probably have tried multiple plant-based protein powders. I don't generally like them. But in terms of cleaner options, Truvani, uh, which is Food Babes, and I have no affiliation with them. 
Food Babes product. I, I think that that tends to be a cleaner option. Uh, but I'm a realist and have, do I have protein powder a couple times a week? Sure. Um, it just depends on what my day is like, because when I open up my feeding window, I, I know how much protein I want to bolus in that first meal. And so sometimes that could very well be a protein shake. And then an hour later I sit down and eat a meal. So I think you want to make sure that the ingredient profile is really clean. I'm not a fan of, um, there was actually a really good study done recently on non-nutritive sweeteners and it was looking at like sucralose and NutraSweet and, um, stevia was kind of lumped in there along with saccharin and I don't know anyone that's using saccharin anymore, but it was looking at the net impact on oral glucose tolerance as well as the gut microbiome. And so I tell everyone like no one should be consuming sucralose or NutraSweet um, because there's, there's no nutritional value and, um, they can disrupt the, the health of the gut microbiome. I'm not sure in that study, what type of stevia they were looking at. Was it, you know, Coca-Cola's product that's Truvia, which I'm, is kind of crappy, or did they have like organic stevia that was in an extract? And so that, that information I wasn't able to readily find, but I think you want to find, um, as clean a product as possible without junky when I say junky, like stevia, in most instances, I don't have a problem with, but sucralose, I have a big issue with. In fact, my son wanted an energy drink and it was kind of a battle of wills. And I kept saying to him, if you understood what sucralose does in the body, and he was like, I don't care, mom. <laughs> and so I think <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, <laughs> exactly, like, like a teenager. And so I said, I just want you to eat the cleanest option available if that's what you're choosing to do. And so uh, getting back to your original question, generally, no, but I do like people to eat whole real food. I think a lot of women get into this habit of just eating protein bars or just having protein powders and not actually eating a real meal. And the satiety from a real meal is very different than what you get from a powder or a shake, in my humble opinion. Yeah. yeah. I feel kind of cheated kind of if cheated I haven't been, haven't been chewing something. something. Yes. So, so, yes, I'm, yes I, definitely I definitely don't feel satisfied, satisfied after, after a, a, uh, a protein, protein shake, shake like I would like, like eggs and bacon, bacon or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, okay, I know okay, we're kind of getting close in time. Just a few more questions. I, I really would value your um, insight on this as a clinician and a menopausal woman. Um, what are your thoughts on hormone replacement therapy? I think that's a great question. Um, so I finished my medical training in 2001 and this was right before the women's health initiative came out and obviously my whole background is ER medicine and cardiology and so um, I was happy to say I didn't have to deal with the, the the aftermath of the women's health initiative but we have a whole generation of clinicians and females that are paranoid to take hormone replacement therapy I am pro hormone replacement therapy for the right person. Um, there are women who don't want to be on hormone replacement therapy, but the more I read about cognition, you know, there's a great book by Dr. Lisa Moscone called the XX brain. That book really started to shift my perception because, uh, you know, I was of the belief of, I was open-minded to it, but I wasn't sure if it was the right decision for me. But when I read that book, it really shifted my focus. Another great book is Why Estrogen Matters by Dr. Avram Blumming and Carol Tavris. I've had them on as guests. They are phenomenal resources. He's a physician, actually an oncologist, and she is a PhD researcher. And when you really look at the research from the WHI, you realize that 
it wasn't even a healthy population of women that they were looking at. They were looking at women that were 10 plus years into menopause. They were looking at women that had been smokers, that were obese, that had high blood pressure, a lot of metabolic issues. And they extrapolated a lot of really poor quality data, which influenced an entire generation of clinicians. And so if you really, that's a great resource, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, those two resources really present information that's very suggestive that for optimizing cognition, bone health, heart health, et cetera, reducing inflammation, being more insulin sensitive, that considering HRT is not a bad idea. Now I can tell you that I have a mixed bag of women in programs, some of whom have no interest in being on HRT. And I always say knowledge is power. So read the resources and you and your clinicians sit down and decide what you want to do, how we get to navigate our choices of how we manage and mitigate middle age on our own. But for me, I'm starting to see a lot of cognitive deficits in my older family members because they've gone, you know, 20 plus years without um, estrogen and estrogen and progesterone and testosterone are all important for cognition. So to answer your question, I am pro HRT. Um, you have to do all the other work first though. You know, if, if your, your healthcare provider gives you HRT before you've done the sleep and the stress management and the nutrition stuff and the right types of exercise and gut health, you're going to probably be the person that ends up gaining a bunch of weight and no woman in menopause or perimenopause wants to put more weight on. Um, the changes in body composition are real. Uh, I do fervently believe that, you know, when someone has all the other things optimized that progesterone and estradiol and testosterone can be very helpful. Um, I also think a lot about most women in perimenopause and menopause have got underactive thyroids. And so really finding a practitioner that is talented enough to be patient with dosing. Um, right now I'm on compounded thyroid medication because nothing that was the typical medical grade stuff was, was getting my thyroid optimized. I take oral progesterone at night, which I love because it has a little bit of an, of an acute um, release and then a sustained release, so it helps me fall asleep. Um, right now I'm using some testosterone cream and we're working on an estrogen patch, but um, I've been on estrogen, off estrogen, and so right now we're in an off estrogen phase, trying to fine tune the thyroid before we bring that back on. But I think it's a highly bio-individual question, but I don't think women should fear replacing hormones. You know, one thing that's important for people to understand is that hundred years ago, the average woman died at 47. And so, um, I know this because of when I did my first Ted talk, it was a statistic that kind of blew me out, blew me out of the water. Cause at the time I did that talk, I was that age myself. Um, and women are living longer. We're living longer for a lot of different reasons. So, um, definitely a, a conversation that every woman needs to have with their provider, uh, and if they're not getting the answers that they're looking for, they should seek um, consult with physicians and nurse practitioners that um, are savvy with hormone replacement therapy. Thank you for that. I, I think, too, especially in these perimenopausal and then going into menopause and People have, um, I have some clients that, that really have so many things dialed in and they, they cannot sleep. You know, we have, we've done everything else and I'm like, you know, it might be, it might be time to look at a progesterone helper. <laughs> I've heard you call progesterone the mellow sister. I love that. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. I mean, it's funny. I, um, I don't think I, so it, it's interesting to me, my late thirties, I definitely remember that's the start of when I stopped sleeping as well, but I assumed it was because I had 
you know, a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I mean, just those things, six-year-old. I think they were four and six in my late 30s. And so for me, I just attributed it to, you know, my husband travels. I've got a stressful job. My kids are young. Um, but it's really the realization that your ovaries aren't producing as much progesterone. And so to me, to, to have um, the support of being able to sleep really well, I mean, that's critically important, not just for my, my mental health, but my physical health as well. And, uh, you know, if you have... A uterus uh, and you're getting estrogen then you also need progesterone and, and that's an important caveat you know transdermal applications of progesterone if you are taking estrogen you need you need both um, you can't just have one so if you're getting oral progesterone and you're in perimenopause or beginning stages of menopause that's certainly fine but uh, understand there are other options beyond that mm-hmm Uh, Such good information. information. Well, before Before I let you go today, I have to ask you the anchor questions, which is what I ask all of my guests. And we kind of, we kind of talked about this first one a little bit, but what is, what is your anchor meal? Um, Your, your go-to healthy meal that you eat often. Oh gosh. I, I think with all the recent travel, it has probably been a naked burger and a salad because I can get that just about anywhere. And Um, you know, thankfully I can order a double burger if I suspect that, you know, the protein portion is going to be small. Um, you know, for me, that's, uh, you know, that that's like typically my go-to. I can make that easily at home. I always have ground meat. Um, that's a really simple, easy thing for me to do. And I've started kind of evolving away from eating a lot of poultry. So, um, red meat just for me personally, really satiates me. My kids prefer it. We do occasionally a chicken, but not a lot. You mentioned a little bit earlier, breaking your fast at nine was a little early for you. What does your typical feeding window look like? Well, you know, it's interesting. The more I understand about chronobiology and insulin sensitivity and what time of day it is, the more I lean into breaking my fast by 10 and, you know, really closing my feeding window before six o'clock. I do a whole lot better eating earlier in the day which sometimes can be problematic. If I'm at events, you know, business events, and I'm eating at seven or eight o'clock at night, I can weather that occasionally, but that's not typically how my body's optimized. Um, so typically the window is, you know, seven to eight hours, usually by 10 a.m. I've broken my fast. And my body genuinely is like very ready because I get up early, get my kids out the door, I get my workout in. Um, I like to get a little bit of work done before. I break my fast, but some days that doesn't happen. So I would say 10 to 6 or 10 to 5 is usually what's optimized for me. I'm kind of the same. I usually break my fast around 9. Um, how about your anchor verse, a Bible verse that is a favorite or just one that is speaking to you presently? Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, when I was in my sorority, we used to talk about Corinthians. And, you know, for me... You know, being Roman Catholic, it's interesting that you asked me this question because I, I feel like Catholicism doesn't per se focus a lot on the Bible. I mean, we talk about the Bible, but not as much about the verses. And so Corinthians and talking about friendship is something that, you know, for me as a female and as a middle-aged woman, the older I get and the more independent my children become, the more comfortable I feel really understanding that my girlfriends are the ones who in many ways have molded me into the person that I am today. I didn't have a great, you know, set of parents. And so 
Um, my, my friends really helped fill in the gaps for me, whether they were even cognizant of it or not. And so that's, that's typically where I lean, but there in the sorority I was in, there was a lot of Corinthians used in our, I probably shouldn't even say this out loud in our rituals, um, in a very kind of healthy way. Um, but typically Corinthians. Oh, Oh, that's, that's awesome. awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Um, well, well, tell everyone everyone where where they can can find you, find the book. And by the way, I wanted to tell everybody there's a lot of recipes in the book. Um, and again, Cynthia lays out the, the different stages and just really an overall approach to fasting and it's such a good informational book. I recommend you pick it up. The recipes are awesome. Um, tell everybody where they can find that, where they can connect with you, follow you, all that good stuff. Yeah, thank you. So easiest place to find me is my website. So it's www.cynthiatherlow.com. Um, the book is The Intermittent Fasting Transformation. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, or your local bookstore. And with the last two and a half years, I encourage everyone to support their brick and mortar businesses. I have an amazing podcast called Everyday Wellness, and I co-host the Intermittent Fasting Podcast with Melanie Avalon, um, and that is that is new over the last six months, which has been super exciting. Um, I'm very active on Instagram, and it's Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. I'm a little snarky on Twitter, admittedly. And then um, <laughs> I would say the other place, we have uh, a free Facebook group called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name. There are men and women in that group. You're more than welcome to to join that group, it's really designed to be a helpful resource, fairly nice community of people, and it is totally free. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for being with us today, for all this good information. And I thanks everyone to listening. I hope you have a healthy and blessed week, and I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week. Thank you